0: What is the principal trader's background? Look for someone who is well-educated with a deep background in either trading, the industry being traded, like agriculture or mining, or preferably both. Ask yourself if this is someone with a reputation of conducting business reliably and professionally. Know how many employees are involved in the operation And keep in mind the increasing costs and difficulties of managing large operations. What are the fees? Typically, a CTA will charge a management fee, that's a proportion of the assets being traded, probably 1 or 2%, and a performance fee, that's a cut of the profits, probably between 10 and 20%. If these fees are wildly off from the prevailing 2 and 20 industry standards, figure out why. What is the minimum investment? Typically, the higher this number is, the better a sign it is of good risk management because of this next question. What percentage of my capital will be risked on a single trade? Is there a maximum percentage at risk on any given trade? This can be a struggle for CTAs who accept small investments. Consider one who has a $20,000 minimum investment, and there aren't many. The margin requirement for a single long or short trade in corn futures, for instance, will eat up more than 10% of a single investor's capital. What is the program's strategy? Pay attention to which asset classes are being traded – especially if the CTA has a very large capitalization. It's one thing for somebody to get $50,000 of trading capital in and out of the illiquid oat futures market without disaster, but a CTA who tries to move millions of dollars will have an awfully hard time getting trades filled unless he sticks with deep, highly liquid markets. Very large funds can amass reportable positions or even run up against position limits set by the CFTC. A CTA strategy can be either discretionary or systematic. A discretionary trader will use human judgment to enter or exit trades, so you really have to trust that human. A systematic strategy will develop computerized algorithms to trigger trades. So you really have to trust that computer. Or trust its programmer, anyway. Although the underlying parameters of any trading strategy will of course be proprietary, get as many details as you can about how those systems are developed. Who is doing the math? What kind of math are they doing? Is it statistics? Simulation? What? Always ask what the fail-safe will be in a worst-case scenario. Ask about ongoing metrics, like the frequency of trading in an average month. This would be expressed as round turns per million. A round turn is the full entry and exit of a trade. Commission costs start to eat up an account's performance as high frequencies of trading occur. Ask for performance records. You not only want the average annual or monthly return data and risk-adjusted performance ratios, but also the worst monthly drawdown and the longest total equity drawdown to get a sense of how strictly the CTA will protect your capital from a risk of loss. This is at least as important, if not more important, than dreaming about the impressive returns you can get from a managed futures account. Who are the service providers? Find out who the CTA uses for clearing and prime brokerage, who does their back office and legal work, etc. Are there limits to the trading program? A CTA may choose not to accept further clients once it gets a certain value of assets under management. It may close a trading program after a certain period of time. It may set guidelines for how much of its own manager's money can be accepted. What are the program's goals? That's a very open-ended question, but it will give you a good sense of the CTA's philosophy. Is she focused entirely on return? How will she measure success? Most importantly, is that philosophy in line with how you want your own capital to be put to work? Whether you choose to put large sums of capital under someone else's direction or not, I think it's valuable to assess your own trading choices in similar terms. What's your strategy? You may not end up building a supercomputer full of trading algorithms, but knowing how much you're willing to risk on any given trade, and knowing whether you want to engage in long-term commodity investment or quick little day trades, will help you focus your research and plan for your trading costs. It will help you crystallize your trading goals. Who is doing what? At any given point in time, one group of market participants may be more active or more influential to futures prices than another group. For instance, after a headline about greater than expected growth in the Chinese economy, speculators may be driven to buy up commodity futures contracts, but it may or may not alter the futures trading patterns of farmers and elevators on that particular day. Alternatively, if China actually purchased several cargoes of physical soybeans to be shipped out of the U.S. over the next few months, the market would quickly experience a flurry of futures trading activity as the international merchandisers who made those sales hedged their soybean positions. The CFTC keeps track of who is doing what in the futures market on at least a weekly basis, although traders with large enough That is, reportable position sizes must also report their holdings daily. Their breakdown of futures market participants into categories is a good framework for you to think about how you fit into the population and about how fundamental market events may affect other groups' intentions. The first group is the producer slash merchant slash processor slash user category which can be more easily referred to as commercial traders. These traders are bona fide hedgers in the commodity markets. Every futures contract they buy or sell is effectively a substitute purchase or sale of the physical commodity that they will need later in their commercial undertaking. That's a farm, an elevator, an ethanol plant, etc., Although there is a lot of popular angst about the oversized influence of speculators on commodity prices, it's this commercial category of traders who actually make up the vast bulk of grain futures trade. Between 2006 and 2011, commercial entities traded 63% of all corn futures contracts and 76% of all wheat futures contracts cleared by the Chicago Board of Trade. The next group is Managed Money. These are the investors with capital in managed futures accounts and all the hedge funds who are trading commodity futures. Between 2006 and 2011, the managed money category traded only 16% of the corn contracts and 24% of the wheat contracts in the Chicago futures markets. These traders will buy futures when they feel the price will be higher later, or sell futures when they feel the price will be lower later. They experience pure profit or loss on that outcome. That is, they're not hedged by an underlying physical commodity position. Incidentally, the speculators in this managed money group are the ones most likely to use high-frequency trading, HFT, techniques to seek their pure profit or loss. Some estimates suggest that as much as 60% of all U.S. futures trading activity is done by high-frequency traders, that is, by computers running automatic algorithms which churn through large quantities of orders, focused on small market moves many times per day, or per hour, or per minute, or even per second but those estimates include market-making activity and all of the HFT activity in equity futures too, not just commodities. So it's not necessarily as if the grain futures markets are being overrun with robots, although heavy volumes of quick, computerized trades have definitely been noticed in recent years. While there is certainly risk in running a commercial grain company, a commercial grain trader's price risk can usually be hedged. Meanwhile, a speculative grain trader is actually going out of his way to seek out and take on risk. People fly to exotic locations or drive hundreds of miles to seek out risk at slot machines and card tables in casinos. And they do it because they hope the returns from their gambles will increase their available capital. They think the rewards will be worth the risk. Similarly, commodity speculators want to take what capital they already have and see that capital grow into a larger amount of capital, and they're willing to accept a risk of loss in order to have that chance. Therein lies the great, beautiful, underlying mechanism and existential purpose of the futures markets—to allow commodity businesses, ostensibly farmers, to remove risk from their operations— by transferring that risk into the hands of those willing speculators. Remember that 99% of all futures contracts will never result in the delivery of physical grain to any warehouse. When a futures contract passes from a farmer or livestock feeder to a speculator, in effect it is not so much grain that is being traded, but rather risk that is being traded, the risk that the price of the grain will change. In that way, speculators serve a valuable purpose in the futures markets, even beyond the increase in liquidity that the markets experience when each additional trader of any category participates. When commodity prices reach uncomfortably high levels for consumers, it's common to hear politicians go after speculators as some kind of threat to our society. They can drive up prices by purchasing futures at too high prices, and therefore make the underlying substance cost more than it otherwise would, so the story goes. Incidentally, politicians never seem to worry when the price of fuel or food or whatever is uneconomically low. Everybody loves filling their car with cheap gas. I believe it's theoretically possible that speculators could drive up the prices of underlying commodities if speculators were the only ones trading futures. But fortunately, there is that delivery mechanism built into the contracts to force futures prices and their underlying physical markets to converge. As long as futures prices have to eventually match the prices of the underlying cash market, futures speculators won't do much to make the physical commodity worth more than its true value. It is sometimes observable that speculators may add to the volatility of futures prices from one day to the next as the volume of their participation waxes and wanes. But while the proportion of speculative participation certainly changes over time, and theoretically can reach disruptive levels, as a general rule, at least in the grain markets, These speculators are far outweighed by commercial traders who must actually buy or sell something of economic value near the prices they're trading on the futures market. Because most market participants who need to hedge their needs on the futures markets will balk when prices get too high, that is, too far past their real physical price, it's difficult for the futures markets to disassociate themselves from economic reality. A failure of convergence did happen for one notable period in the Chicago wheat market in 2008. As the December 2008 wheat futures contract was nearing expiration and was in delivery, it traded between $5 and $5.50 per bushel. Meanwhile, the average of cash prices across the country was no higher than $3.93 per bushel. This was partially the result of an unusually large amount of futures participation from speculative funds with no interest in the cash price, but such an occurrence is quite rare. The CME group implements variable storage rates for the physical wheat held in delivery warehouses, specifically to allow futures contract prices to better match the physical reality. The speculative traders who swamped the Chicago wheat futures market in late 2008 weren't just CTAs and hedge funds. A sizable portion of them were also index funds and swap dealers, two other categories of market participants tracked by the CFTC. Index funds tend to buy and hold commodity futures contracts essentially forever, only selling when they need to roll to the next contract month or reweight their holdings they can be huge, but they are rarely a source of unpredictable volatility in the supply and demand of commodity futures. Swap dealers are typically large banks who are writing private hedge contracts for their commercial clients and using the futures markets to offset their own subsequent risk. In essence, futures market participation by swap dealers, which is sizable, can be a proxy for other commercial, that is, producer-slash-merchant-slash-processor-slash-user hedging activity. But because some investment activity can also be, quote, hedged by banks registered as swap dealers, it's a somewhat opaque category. In any case, knowing who is doing what in the grain futures markets can help your structural analysis of supply and demand. To some extent, Knowing who is doing the buying or selling affects my opinion of the market's overall bullish or bearish sentiment. Large amounts of farmer selling at certain times of the year could just be related to their need for cash to pay off bills, rather than an expression of greatly bearish opinion about prices. It's also helpful, when you see heavy trading activity one day, to know whether speculators previously held a large net-long or net-short futures position. For instance, frantic buying could be the result of short covering, that is, buying futures to offset previously short positions, rather than fresh, bullish sentiment. Conversely, a high volume of selling one day could be speculative profit-taking, that is, selling futures to offset previously long positions, perhaps related to an outside market or an accounting deadline, instead of an expression of fresh, bearish sentiment. FARMER'S USE OF FUTURES Remember when Joe Smith went long five contracts of corn and five contracts of soybeans? And how apoplectic his broker acted? The specific phrase was, It's never a legitimate hedge for a farmer to go long. When Joe Smith, whose business it is to produce and own grain, that is, to be inherently long in the physical grain market, bought grain futures contracts, he was not in any way offsetting his business's inherent market position. He wasn't making a substitute sale for some physical sale he would make at a later date. He was just doing some plain old speculation, hoping that prices would rise. And that's fine. The markets are as open to farmers who want to speculate as they are to anyone else. In fact, farmers make some of the best speculators because they know so much about the fundamental mechanics of supply-side grain economics. Being physically located out among the nation's grain fields, they also can sometimes pick up on production concerns more quickly than the rest of the market, which is an advantage when you want to make a speculative trade before the knowledge gets priced into the market. But by and large... For a grain producer to use the futures market as a legitimate hedging tool, they should be selling futures contracts to offset their inherently long physical grain market exposure. The mechanics of doing this are quite different than any of the other previous types of farmer grain sales we've discussed so far. First, think about an actual futures contract for corn, for example, which represents 5,000 bushels of corn to be delivered to a warehouse along the Illinois River by a certain date. If Gary Green sells a March corn futures contract at $5.00 per bushel, on the face of it, that transaction commits him to deliver five truckloads of corn to the Illinois waterway by March 15th. Since he lives in the middle of Iowa, let's say it would cost him $0.60 per bushel to transport that corn to Peoria. So, of the $25,000 he would receive for delivering on the futures contract, he would effectively only pocket 22000 That's the equivalent of $4.40 per bushel. Anyway, for a number of reasons, Gary Green from the middle of Iowa is never going to choose to deliver his corn to some CME warehouse. It would take too much time, it costs a lot of money, there are perfectly good corn customers right in his own county, like the local ethanol plant, and above all, the paperwork and process of delivering on a futures contract is just a giant headache. Pretty much the only market participants who are set up for that paperwork are the large grain trading firms who own the warehouses. So when Gary Green sold that futures contract, He was representing physical corn he could deliver to a warehouse, but he was really only making that representation as a financial substitute for the real physical sale he was intending to make in March. What would actually happen then is that Gary Green would load up five truckloads of corn whenever was convenient for him after harvest and take them into his local elevator. The market for corn may have collapsed from the time when Gary made the $5 futures sale, and the elevator might only pay him $4 per bushel for the grain. That's $20,000 total. However, since the futures market would have also collapsed during the same period of time, perhaps from $5 to $4.20, Gary would receive a $4,000 cash profit from his brokerage account when he closed out his short futures position on the same day as the physical grain sale his net cash income from the two transactions would be $24,000, or equivalent to $4.80 per bushel. Therefore, the net profit or loss from selling grain via a futures hedge is financially identical to selling grain via forward cash contracts. That's why, no matter where or when the grain actually goes to an end-user— whether or not the grain itself really could be physically delivered according to the futures contract specifications, a futures hedge is a financial substitute for a real physical transaction. In fact, corn futures contracts can be used to hedge products that aren't even corn. For instance, milo, also known as sorghum, is a grain that's grown mostly in the drier regions of the United States but which can be used as animal feed or ethanol feedstock, just like corn, or it can be used in trendy, gluten-free food products. Therefore, the prices of milo, itself an economic substitute for corn, move up or down at the same times and at pretty much the same rates as corn futures prices. Farmers who need to hedge their milo production can do so by selling corn futures contracts. And end users who need to hedge their Milo requirements can do so by buying corn futures contracts. Their potential losses in the cash market will be closely offset by their gains in the futures markets and vice versa. That illustrates the only condition necessary for one market to be used as a hedge for another market. The two markets must be strongly correlated. There are two sides to any hedge. One side will be long in one market, for instance, owning physical grain, and the other side will be short in another, closely related market, for instance, selling grain futures. And for the financial consequences of one side to adequately offset the other side in a reliable way, both markets must move in the same direction, at the same time, to the same degree. Statistically, that's the definition of correlation – A positive correlation exists when two variables move together reliably, and a negative correlation exists when one variable moves up while the other goes down. So if two markets were fundamentally unmatched and statistically uncorrelated, like cotton futures and McDonald's stock, then holding a long position in one market and a short position in the other market wouldn't necessarily prevent a risk of loss— both positions could be losing at the same time. Incidentally, if two markets were strongly and reliably negatively correlated, like the U.S. dollar and corn futures, then being either long or short in both markets could be an effective hedge against net losses. Fortunately, the practice of hedging a farmer's cash grain position with futures is very straightforward because the futures markets and the underlying cash grain markets are so tightly related. The principle of arbitrage will always keep this true. If a grain futures market doesn't gain enough or fall enough to match the movement of the underlying cash market, then when the futures contract goes into delivery, a mass of buying and selling in the underpriced and overpriced markets will bring them back in line. But while a farmer can be confident his futures hedges will mathematically work out to lock in an equivalent financial outcome for his grain, the experience of locking in grain prices through the futures market is quite different than the less demanding experience of selling forward grain contracts. If Gary Green had sold his 5,000 bushels of corn to his local elevator at $4.80 per bushel with a forward cash contract, and then the corn market rose to $5.80 per bushel, he would have lost an opportunity to sell more valuable grain, and the marked-to-market value of his grain position would have reflected that loss. But he never would have had to write a check and watch $5,000 of actual cash leave his possession which would be the experience if he had sold a futures contract and watched the market rise $1 per bushel. In that sense, it's easier for a farmer to ignore opportunity costs when they're not staring at him as a negative number in a brokerage account. But psychologically speaking, that's not always a good thing. To a truly disciplined marketer, the current value of the grain should always be in mind anyway. The other slightly awkward part of using futures contracts to hedge a cash grain position is the likelihood that the grain a farmer owns won't be precisely divisible by 5,000 bushels. If Joe Smith will produce exactly 117,300 bushels of corn one year, and will hedge it all using conventional standardized futures contracts, he'll have to leave 2,300 bushels unhedged and unhedged grain is susceptible to all the price risk of the volatile markets. This isn't actually a huge problem because, for one thing, the CME offers mini-contracts in standardized 1,000-bushel increments. For another thing, in practice, no farmer ever hedges 100% of his production before harvest because he can never be exactly sure what his crop will yield his best guess will always be just an estimate. But if, theoretically, a farmer had exactly 117,300 accurately measured bushels of corn in a bin and he wanted to completely hedge all price risk from that cash-grain position, he could use corn futures to do most of the hedging, 23 full-sized contracts and two mini-contracts but would then have to use a cash-forward contract to lock in a price for the remaining 300 bushels. Recall the reasons why futures were developed as preferable tools to forward contracts, the reduction in counterparty risk, the greater fungibility of the contract, and the greater liquidity of the market. When it comes to hedging their grain production, farmers need a tool that is financially flexible By hedging his 5,000 bushels of corn with a futures contract rather than a forward contract, Gary Green gave himself the opportunity to change his mind about the price he locked in. At any time, if he chooses, he can exit that futures contract without having to renegotiate a bunch of terms or pay any fees other than brokerage commission. He could also change his mind about the delivery time frame. If he had hedged the corn against the March futures contract, and then it turns out that the gravel road to his grain bins gets buried in eight feet of snow, or that the local ethanol plant presents a particularly compelling bid for May corn, then it's no big hassle for Gary to call his broker and roll his futures hedge from the March to the May contract, and he'd get to profit from the additional carry spread between those two contracts. Most importantly of all, when a farmer locks in a price with a futures hedge rather than a forward contract, he's not committing to any specific transfer of ownership. Once he writes a forward contract with an elevator, that buyer can start to account for those bushels in its total grain position, and the farmer has lost negotiating power. The bushels contractually must go to that buyer, And if the ethanol plant down the road suddenly becomes frantic for corn and pays 20 cents over the prevailing market rate, the farmer no longer has an opportunity to sell those bushels to the ethanol plant for the higher price. With a futures hedge, however, the farmer locks in a mathematical price for his grain, but the actual negotiation and transaction of selling the physical grain to a buyer can be delayed until the circumstances are in the farmer's best interest. The big decision, however, is what price level to select for the futures hedge. It's never wrong to lock in a profit. So once the futures market reaches a level above the per bushel cost of production, you can expect to see some farmers selling futures. Depending on their bullish or bearish opinion of the market's direction, however, they may rush or delay those hedging sales above or below their break-even price level. A farmer may only directly interact with the futures market on a few days of each year. He could theoretically sell a whole year's production in one fell swoop on just one day at just one price. But it's more common to make sales in increments and gradually achieve an average price for the year. Either way, most farmers will take a few minutes out of each day to track the market prices. If your salary, or your bank account, was likely to go up or down by 2% each day, you too would probably make an effort to keep up to date. The standard deviation of daily corn futures returns has recently been fairly tame. The price tends to change less than 1% on any given day. But in the 2010-2011 marketing year, for instance, daily price changes really did tend to exceed 2%. Farmers not only need to track what the futures markets have been up to, but also to see how the local cash grain markets have been moving. Although the correlation between the futures markets and the cash grain markets is pretty close to perfect and close enough to allow for hedging, it's not actually a 1.0000 correlation during all periods of time. It's entirely possible for the futures price to increase 50 cents over a month, let's say, and for the local cash bid from a particular ethanol plant to increase 55 cents during that same time period. This slippage between the futures and the cash market can also occur in the other direction. The cash market can grow weaker faster than the futures fall. And that's why it's very important for farmers to track both markets. The value of a farmer's cash grain position can, in practice, fall faster than the profits of a short futures hedge can offset the loss. In fact, This phenomenon of cash grain prices and futures moving at slightly different rates is so crucially important to grain marketers, it has its own name. Basis. And basis is the basis for all the greatest trading fortunes that have ever been made in the grain markets. Basis. To define it, basis is the mathematical difference between the price of a futures contract, that is, the consolidated, standardized, and universally accepted benchmark of a grain market, and the actual price of a local cash grain market at any given location at any given point in time. Virtually no one receives exactly the nominal value of benchmark grain futures for their physical grain, There are a million separate values for grain out in the countryside, depending on where it is, what its quality is like, how badly buyers need the stuff that day, etc. To be able to compare all those millions of localized grain bids against one another and against the market in general, there's the basis equation. The local cash price minus the futures price, equals BASIS. Or put another way, the futures price plus BASIS equals the local cash price. BASIS gets its name from phrasing like, we're bidding 15 under BASIS March futures. From that information, and from knowing the current value of the March futures contract, you could determine the actual flat price, or local cash bid. Using this example, if March wheat futures were priced at $6.00 per bushel, a farmer selling 1,000 bushels of wheat to this bidder would receive a check for $5,850 because the flat price would be $5.85 per bushel. The equation would say $6.00 and zero cents plus a negative 15 cents of basis, equals $5.85. When calculating basis or flat price, you have to be very, very careful about whether the basis is a negative or positive number. Typically, country bids for grain will be negative, but they certainly can be positive. So you will not only irritate pedants if you say mysterious things like, basis 15 the March, or basis increased today, but you could also end up totally misunderstanding a trade. Maybe you mean basis is 15 under the March contract, but a basis bid certainly could be 15 cents over the March, in which case those thousand bushels would have been worth $6,150. The equation would have said $6.00, Plus a positive 15 cents of basis equals $6.15. In the first example, an increasing basis number could be a change from 15 under the March to 20 under the March. That widening of basis would mean the cash market at that location was becoming relatively weaker than the futures market. Here's how the basis could weaken. On February 1st, the futures price may be $6 and the flat price may be $5.85 with a basis bid of 15 under the March. Then on February 8th, the futures price may have risen to $6.03 per bushel and the flat price may be $5.83 per bushel with a basis bid of 20 under the March. Notice in that example that the futures market itself was rising over time but the basis bid grew weaker, and the flat price bids showed a relatively weaker cash market. But we have to say it was weaker, not wider, or bigger, or increased, because watch what happens in the second example when basis starts out as a positive number. On February 1st, the futures price may be $6.00, and the flat price may be $6.15 if the basis bid is 15 over the March. Then on February 8th, the futures price has risen to $6.03, and the flat price has also risen, but now to $6.23, because the basis bid is now 20 over the March. In that instance, the basis number again grew larger, but because it was already positive, That was a reflection of the cash market growing relatively stronger than the futures market. Wider/slash narrower or increasing/slash decreasing terminology is therefore meaningless in basis arithmetic. To be truly accurate, we must always only say basis strengthened when we mean cash prices gained relatively more or lost relatively less than the futures prices. And we must always say, basis weakened, when we mean cash prices lost relatively more or gained relatively less than the futures prices. With that syntax firmly in mind, we can start to examine what actually makes basis grow stronger or weaker from one day to the next. I said basis values in the country are typically negative, and that's historically true, because in theory basis is a reflection of transportation costs and supply and demand. If we work from an overly simplified assumption that the cash value of corn at a CME-registered warehouse on March 15th must, because of arbitrage, be equal to the value of March corn futures at expiration, we can set a theoretical ground zero for basis right along the Illinois River. Under these assumptions, basis should be exactly zero at that location at the time of future's expiration. From there, basis values will radiate outward at weaker and weaker levels as the grain gets farther and farther away from a delivery point. If truck freight costs one dollar per mile and there are no backhaul opportunities, it would take 30 cents per bushel to transport grain into the zero basis zone from 150 miles away on a 1,000 bushel truck. So, let's say everywhere at a 150-mile radius from the zero basis zone has a basis bid of 30 under the march. Everywhere at a 300-mile radius would have a basis bid of 60 under the march. And everywhere at a 450-mile radius would have a basis bid of 90 under the march, etc. That's a gross oversimplification because of all the variable supply and demand factors in different geographies, which have nothing to do with futures delivery points. But it explains historically why basis bids out in the middle of the country are usually negative numbers. Even in that simple theoretical world, grain must not only be purchased out in the country where it is produced, it must also be sold to the entities who will ultimately consume it. Those entities could be a cattle feed yard in Texas, perhaps, or a nation with a grain deficit to which we will export the grain out of a facility at the Gulf of Mexico. Transportation costs also play a role in determining what basis those consumers will have to pay. For instance, pretend it takes 70 cents per bushel to ship grain from Peoria, Illinois, to New Orleans, Louisiana, on a barge. In our perfect theoretical world basis at New Orleans, Louisiana, NOLA, would be 70 over the March. In the real world, SIF grain, that's the shorthand term for grain that's traded on waterway vessels with cost, insurance, and freight, CIF, included in the price. That grain really does tend to have positive basis values. Now, pretend it would take $1 per bushel to ship that same grain on a train to Texas. The cattle feeder's basis would then be 100 over the march. And in reality, rail grain also usually has positive basis values. So you see, basis can be positive in some areas, and it usually is positive at those demand points. It gets a little more interesting when you start to consider that all the thousands of little elevators and farms around the country are not only some distance from a future's delivery point, but also some smaller distance from a demand point. For instance, Buffalo, Kansas is about the halfway point between Peoria, Illinois and Amarillo, Texas it would cost about $0.98 per bushel to ship grain from Buffalo to either Peoria or Amarillo, again, using $1 per mile for a truck and no backhauls, which are not very realistic assumptions, but they keep the math fair for this hypothetical scenario. So you might expect basis in Buffalo, Kansas, to be both $0.98 weaker than it is in Peoria, and also $0.98 weaker than it is in Amarillo. But in that perfect theoretical world we had, 0 basis minus 98 cents of transportation would equal 98 under the march. But 100 over march minus 98 cents of transportation would equal 2 over the march. There is clearly a lot of wiggle room between 98 under the march and 2 over the march basis. So now we get to step away from that bizarro world of theoretically easy basis math and talk about basis in reality. As I'm writing this, basis in Amarillo is really only about 25 cents stronger than the basis in Peoria, which is not zero. And the Amarillo bid is about 50 cents stronger than the bid near Buffalo, Kansas. In practice, the pure math will almost never work out exactly between one far-flung location and another location several hundred miles away. You can calculate the basis difference from a farm to an ethanol plant 50 miles away with confidence, but once you start shipping grain across several regions, which each have their own competing demand points, like cattle feeders, poultry feeders, ethanol plants, export terminals, food manufacturers... There is never going to be any magic ground zero from which all other bids could be calculated. Cash grain prices are different in each different location, and you can calculate arbitrage opportunities from those differences as I've already shown in previous chapters. In practice, using basis values rather than flat prices is a far superior method to communicate local grain price differences. That's because a flat price, calculated from a basis bid, is accurate no matter what gyrations the futures markets go through that day. A flat price bid with unknown basis could have a lot of slippage in understanding. If Joe Smith calls up Jason at the Mungus Elevator and asks for their current grain bid, Jason might say, We're 20 under the march, so 480 at the moment. That's good information. Because in the amount of time it took me to write this paragraph, the March futures contract could very easily have fallen from five dollars to four ninety-five or four ninety or anywhere. If Joe takes a few minutes or a few hours to think about whether or not he wants to sell that grain today, by the time he makes that decision, the four dollar and eighty cent cash bid may no longer be available. It may be four seventy-five or 470 but still 20 cents under the march contract so joe can look at the march futures price let's say it's 490 a few hours later and know that the flat price bid he would be likely to receive from jason at that point in time would now be $4.70 that's the 490 minus the 20 cents of basis of course, the basis bid itself could change the second after they hang up the phone, but basis is much less likely to experience a volatile change than the futures market is. If a merchandiser only gives out his bid as a flat price, 480, or if a farmer only pays attention to the flat price bid without listening for or keeping track of basis, a lot of confusion can result. Wherever there is confusion, there is also the potential for somebody on one side of a trade to take advantage of somebody on the other side of the trade. Trying to calculate price differences from flat price alone also makes life difficult for anyone trying to identify arbitrage opportunities. Cash grain traders need to keep a multivariate matrix of hundreds of different grain sources and dozens of different grain consumers in play at all times so they can always find the best home for grain or identify arbitrage opportunities. Knowing the grain's value expressed as basis is pretty much the only way to keep that matrix straight from one day to the next. For instance, corn from Joe Smith's Iowa Geography could end up getting exported out of the Gulf via barge transportation down the Mississippi River, or it could end up in the grind at a local ethanol plant, or it could end up getting mixed and blended and loaded on a train at the local elevator to be sent to some other domestic market, or it could be sold directly to a local livestock feeder. There is a unique value for each of those propositions, and a grain trader's job, including Joe Smith's job, is to figure out which of those values presents the greatest profit opportunity between the origin and the final destination. Let's say Mungus Elevator has a delivered basis bid of 5 over the March contract. The transportation cost from Joe Smith's Farm is 5 cents. Therefore, the equivalent bid, FOB Joe Smith's Farm, is 5 over the March, minus 5, making 0 basis. Let's further say the Beef Eater's Feedlot has a delivered basis bid of zero the March. The transportation cost from Joe's Farm is six cents, and the equivalent bid, FOB, Joe Smith's Farm, is six under the March. Let's say the Springfield Ethanol Plant has a delivered basis bid of two over the March, and six cents of transportation, leading to a FOB bid of four under the March. Finally, let's say the Peoria barge terminal has a delivered basis bid of 23 over the March, but transportation costs are 25 cents, leading to an equivalent bid, Fob Joe Smith's Farm, at 2 under the March. From that information, it's clear that even though Peoria has a nominally stronger basis bid, Shipping grain from Joe Smith's farm to the Mungus Elevator is the best opportunity for him to capture basis. Because all these basis bids are being calculated from the identical March futures contract as a benchmark, it's an arithmetic certainty that the strongest basis opportunity is also the highest flat price opportunity. That will be true no matter what the futures market does. Drop 20 cents one day, Gain 15 cents the next, or both in the same day, as long as the basis bids remain the same. As the basis bids change from one day to the next, it will be easier to keep track of them and their reasons for doing so if all you have to do is know, Mungus is 5 over, Beefeaters is 0 over, etc., rather than, Mungus was bidding 510 on Wednesday, Beef eaters was bidding 476 the day before that so which one is better now? In practice, a grain trader might keep track of a market by thinking siF corn is at 23h by 25h. That would mean willing buyers were bidding at 23 over the March and willing sellers were offering corn in that region for 25 over the March. In that instance, the bid ask spread, would be two cents. Basis is not only a function of transportation costs, but also a matter of supply and demand at each location, which will affect each bid and offer. Beefeeder's feedlot and the Springfield ethanol plant are equidistant from Joe Smith's farm. They both have identical transportation costs. So if transportation were the only variable in basis values, Arbitrage would suggest they must both post identical bids. However, that's not the case. Joe Smith could make his corn worth an extra two cents, four under instead of six under, by taking it to the ethanol plant rather than the feedlot. Why would that be? Maybe the ethanol plant is frantic to buy corn this week because it's about to run out, and it can't just shut down all its equipment. Maybe the feedlot got a great deal on some cheap, lower-quality corn six months ago and is still blending that off into its feed rations. That kind of knowledge is valuable to a grain trader. It could make you quicker to react when the ethanol plant suddenly has a breakdown, for instance. But at this point in time, Joe Smith's corn is most likely to end up at the elevator. What is going on at the elevator so that it can outbid the local end-users and the barge market? Possibly, it could be loading trainloads of corn that are destined for an entirely different geography than the barge market. The rail market not only has access to export terminals at the Gulf of Mexico, but also to export terminals in the Pacific Northwest, the PNW, to poultry feeders in the Southeast, cattle feeders in the Southwest and Mexico, and dairies in California. Those are just some examples of end-users, and you could do this same basis matrix exercise for a trainload of grain that could be routed to any of those demand points rather than for a truckload of grain off of Joe Smith's farm. Presumably, Jason and his colleagues at Mungus have actually done that exercise and discovered they could make the corn worth five over at their elevator— which results in an equivalent bid of zero basis at Joe Smith's farm. Incidentally, in the lingo of the grain markets, rather than saying zero over or zero under, we typically say option, or ideally, option the march. And that's the other vital thing to keep straight when tracking the basis movement in a grain market. You must know which futures contract is being used. Five under the march is not... Equivalent to five under the May. Well, it might be, but it's exceedingly rare for any two futures contract months to have precisely equal prices. Due to the typical positive spread structure, carry, the May contract could be 10 cents higher than the March contract on any given day. To communicate the same flat price on that day, a basis bid of five under the March would have to be expressed as 15 under the May to represent the same cash value. Especially as the front month futures contract gets close to expiration, grain bidders will start to roll their basis bids over to the next contract month. And you could find yourself in a situation where Beefeaters Feedlot is bidding 10 under the May, Springfield Ethanol is bidding 8 under the May, and Mungus Elevator is still bidding 5 over the March. In the near term, it's just going to make your comparisons a little more complex, but if you're comparing whether to sell grain in one time frame or another, keeping track of the spreads between futures contracts and the basis bids for deferred months will also help you decide which time frame presents the best flat price opportunity. The timing of your cash grain trades may also be influenced by the seasonal weakness or strength of supply and demand in a local market. You might expect basis to reach its weakest point of the year at the gut slot of harvest, when the heaviest flow of grain is coming on the market and local elevators' capacity to handle grain has reached a bottleneck. There are also sometimes weaker dips in basis bids at the start of January or in March, because those are time frames when it's convenient for farmers to haul grain and inject cash into their operations. If there was a relatively poor harvest one year, the strongest peak of local basis levels may occur late in the following summer, as end users struggle to find high-quality grain remaining on the local market. In order to discover the seasonal basis patterns specific to your own local market, there really is no way to do it other than to amass the data. Either keep a record for yourself for a year or several years, or ask your favorite merchandiser if they could send you their records, and see if patterns emerge. Your own geography will have a normal range of seasonal activities and special considerations. Knowing how the national average basis seasonally tends to behave may not be especially helpful to any one trader, but you can track that knowledge also. The Minneapolis Grain Exchange publishes cash price indexes for several grain markets and offers futures contracts on those indexes. Each index is a calculation of thousands of cash bids collected across the country each day by DTN, a market information company. The thousands of bids then get averaged together to create one national average cash price for corn, soybeans, hard red spring wheat, hard red winter wheat, and soft red winter wheat each day. Comparing those index values to the daily futures settlement will give you a national average basis bid, and from that you can determine when an overall grain market is in a period of strong basis – that's relatively eager physical demand and or shortage of supply, or in a period of weak basis, that's relatively ample supply and or disinterested demand. As it turns out, there is indeed a seasonal pattern to grain basis, just like you would expect. For the benchmark corn market, national average basis levels tend to weaken through the months of September, October, and December then bottom out sometime in January. The weakest value for the five-year national average between 2006 and 2011 occurred on January 10th at 54 under the March, then fluctuate through spring and early summer. The strongest level seen in the five-year national average for 2006 through 2011 was in early August at about 20 under the September, to give you an idea of the range of basis values that are typical for the corn market. The years following 2011 displayed strange patterns due to a drought in 2012 and transportation issues in 2013 and 2014. In fact, it's always challenging to compare one year's basis value to any other years because of the unique transportation costs and supply and demand issues throughout the country. But just as a general rule of thumb, when you start to see large portions of the cash grain market start bidding significantly weaker than 50 under basis or significantly stronger than 20 under basis, it's a signal of something unusually bearish or bullish happening in the physical grain market. Ultimately, end users will be buying grain and farmers will be selling grain at a flat price. They'll write or receive a check based on that flat price, so there can be some insulation from either basis movements or futures movements if one offsets the other. To someone who cares about flat price, it doesn't really matter whether $6.00 is the mathematical result of $5.80 futures plus 20 over basis, or $6.20 futures and 20 under basis. Merchandisers can sometimes use that to their advantage and shade their basis bids when futures prices rise. On the other hand, if their bid of $1,500 does not quite make a $6 target price for a farmer, sometimes they can push the basis a little to reach a psychological price trigger. That phenomenon has led to an enduring piece of apocryphal wisdom in the grain markets, that basis tends to get stronger when futures prices fall and vice versa. A statistical examination of the data shows that such a relationship doesn't exist, however, at least not on a large or long-term scale. Taking the daily percentage changes in a grain market's futures price over the past five years and comparing that to the daily percentage changes in the market's national average basis level, there is no statistically significant correlation. In fact, During periods of supply shortage, when basis bids start to get especially hot, the strength of those bids tends to get stronger and stronger at the same time as futures prices rise higher and higher. If we isolate just those periods of time when national average corn basis bids were positive, late 2011 for example, the correlation between daily basis changes and daily futures returns is very nearly positive 1.0. When grain becomes scarce, eager buyers express their eagerness in every way available to them. So beware any too-trite rules of thumb about how basis should move. It will be helpful to know what the seasonal basis patterns are in your own locality, and even more helpful to know what supply and demand factors affect your local end-users, but each marketing year can behave differently than the ones before it. This means there are a lot of chances for farmers to leave money on the table by not properly timing basis sales, which in turn means there are a lot of opportunities for somebody to make money by accurately trading basis movement. Merchandiser's Use of Futures When Rosie received the first phone call of the day, the eastern sun had just crept high enough "'that it no longer streamed through the elevator's one grimy window "'and no longer illuminated the ever-present army of dancing dust-motes. "'For the rest of this day, like every day of the past forty years, "'Rosie would sit perched on her office chair "'in the darkest, dustiest corner of the Grover Elevator feed-store "'slash-merchandising office, "'not unlike a patient barn spider with a large squat body.' and active, nimble fingers. Her desk had always been her desk, even for those brief years in the 70s when Roy had still been alive and Rosie was just the secretary. Then Roy had died, and to the eternal consternation of her in-laws, Rosie had become the sole owner, manager, chief executive, and grain merchandiser of the Grover Elevator. Staying in business through the 80s, when nearly half her farmer customers had gone bankrupt and many of them had left her in the lurch for various feed bills, had been no picnic, but at the end of it all, Rosie had emerged solvent and shrewd and dedicated to the principles of disciplined hedging for all her grain trades. Both the corn and soybean markets had been soft in recent weeks, and that was all anybody grew around Grover anymore— So Rosie hadn't been receiving many phone calls from farmers lately, and she wasn't expecting any that morning. In fact, she was only halfway through the newspaper's crossword puzzle, and didn't really enjoy an interruption from the ringing phone. So she growled, Grover, into the phone's mouthpiece. Uh, hey, is this Rosie? Yep. Hey, this is Jason over at the Mungus Elevator in Springfield. Uh, how are you doing today? Well, I'm fine, Jason. How are things in Springfield? Rosie cradled the phone against her shoulder as she scribbled the letters S-N-E-E-R-S into 17 across. Oh, fine. So, uh, we're gonna have some trucks over in your direction next month, and I was wondering if maybe you had any heat-damaged corn or anything like that you were trying to get rid of? Hmm... Nope, I don't think so. You know, we've got a feed mill here, so any heat-damaged corn we would have, we'd just get rid of on our own. Oh, well, um, what kind of value would you put on 30-day corn right now, anyway? Corn that you'd pick up here. Yep, Fob Grover. Rosie put down her pencil and swiveled her chair toward the wall where she could see the inventory diagram of all her bins. Eh, "'It doesn't really bother me to hang on to my corn for a few more months. "'Probably don't need to get rid of any right now.' "'Oh.' "'Rosie rolled her eyes in the few seconds of silence, "'waiting for the kid to make the next move. "'But just to help me out with my position, Jason, "'why don't you tell me what you'd value nearby corn Fob Grover at?' "'Oh, uh, I was thinking of bidding you 15 under the march.' The more experienced merchandiser made little noises with her tongue against her teeth as she pretended to hesitate. She looked at the market spreads, and her eyes gleamed. "'I don't know, Jason. Like I said, we really don't have to get rid of any corn just now.' "'Well, uh, fifteen is the best I can make it worth for you.' "'You don't have any push in that?' "'No, and think about it. How far away are you from Cedar Rapids?' There can't be much of a way you can make it worth more than that trucking it all the way there yourself. I'm buying in from a previous sale. Otherwise, I couldn't probably make it worth that either. Yeah, but Jason, we grind up most of our corn and sell it out as feed, so the cedar value doesn't really matter to me so much. Oh, okay, well, if you change your mind. Fearing he was really going to hang up the phone, Rosie finally went for it. Hey, I tell you what. I've got my futures position all funny at the moment. If you can do that 30-day ship corn, but write it up as 15 under the May, I think I could spare you 20,000 bushels. Yeah, okay, yeah, let's do that. You can write this up right now. Yep, it'll be my contract number 8175 for 20,000 March bushels, Fob Grover at 15 under the May. Got it. 8175. Thanks. Now just make sure those trucks show up. Yep, thanks. Bye. Rosie hung up the phone and let a slow grin creep across her face. Kids these days. But 50 miles away, when Jason wrote up the contract and showed it triumphantly to Dale, the Mungus elevator manager, there were no smiles. You idiot! You just lost 12 cents on that trade! The first golden rule of successful cash grain trading, also known as merchandising, is that profit or loss should always be accounted as a function of basis. That is to say, Jason lost 12 cents on that trade because he bought March corn for 15 under the May when it was only worth 27 under the May, not because he bought March corn for $4.85 when it was only worth $4.73. The second statement may also be true, but it's not the proper way to track performance in your head if you are a merchandiser. There is no second, third, or fourth golden rule of merchandising. Each trade is unique and will require a unique combination of opportunity, relationship building, and negotiation. But there are some exceptions to that first rule. Some merchandisers in the grain industry will find themselves trading unusual commodities. Wheat gluten, ethanol byproducts, organic barley, beet pulp, etc. Because there are no standardized futures markets for those commodities, there is no perfect way to hedge long or short positions in those markets. There may be some imperfect ways to hedge. For instance, soybean meal may be a rough substitute for cottonseed meal, and the two markets should have some positive correlation. So a long position in one could sort of hedge a short position in the other. But in practice, there is no perfect benchmark equation of futures minus cash equals basis for beet pulp. Those merchandisers have little choice but to buy and sell those specialized commodities using flat prices only. Another exception to the basis trading regime is the independent elevators and grain dealers who actually choose to do cash speculation in the grain markets. However, the number of traders who do that is vanishingly small, because they tend to get wiped out by bankruptcy sooner or later. I can only think of one tiny elevator manager in a five-state area who I know doesn't use futures hedges, but instead just buys grain when he thinks prices are cheap, and sells when he thinks prices are high. And that's assuming he hasn't bankrupted already also. Think about why that's a terrible idea. You might believe there is a reliable pattern of grain being, quote, cheap at harvest and higher priced the following March. And if you owned a 100,000 bushel elevator, you might plan to fill it up in October with flat-priced purchases and empty it out in March with a flat-priced sale. And live off the profit. Here's how your plan's profit and loss would have performed in the real historical corn market. In the year 2000, the October cash price for corn was $2.06 per bushel. The price the following March was $2.03 per bushel. For 100,000 bushels, the trades P&L would have been a $3,000. In subsequent years, the p and l would have been negative three thousand again in two thousand one, negative twelve thousand dollars in two thousand two, a positive seventy three thousand dollars in two thousand three, positive eleven thousand dollars in two thousand four, positive forty thousand dollars in two thousand five positive fifty four thousand dollars in two thousand six in two thousand seven. the October price for corn was three seventy five And the price the following March was $5.67, so this would have led to a positive $192,000 profit. Then in 2008, the profit would have been $4,000. In 2009, the loss would have been $21,000. In 2010, the profit would have been $111,000. In 2011, a $3,000 loss, then a $61,000 loss, then a $74,000 gain. Then a thousand dollar loss, then a thirty one thousand dollar loss, and then in 2016, the October price was 355, the price the following March was 364, and the trades P&L would have been a positive nine thousand dollars. So usually it would work, and sometimes it would work like a charm. There really is reliable seasonality in the grain markets. However, notice that this exercise ignored the operating costs, shrink, taxes, depreciation, and interest cost of paying for 100,000 bushels of grain for four months. In most years, that income stream from that kind of upfront investment wouldn't impress any rational investor. More importantly, it would only take one bad year to get your creditors breathing down your neck. Whether a $21,000 loss in 2009 would be bad enough to trigger bankruptcy, who knows. But it's the unpredictable possibility that some year you could lose a spectacular amount, which makes it a truly bad idea. No one has ever built a company the size of Cargill or ADM or Bungie by trying to outguess the direction of futures markets. Rather than cash speculation... Most merchandisers use two other types of cash-grain trades, back-to-back transactions or basis trades. I've used some examples of back-to-back trades in the previous sections of this book, like when a merchandiser would buy soybeans from a farmer, then sell those soybeans to a processing plant for 10 cents per bushel more. In reality, he does this as two basis trades, for example, buying from the farmer at 60 under the march and selling to the processor for 50 under the march. But however the accounting is done, it's a very clear arbitrage. The two transactions are done as close to simultaneously as possible. As soon as the merchandiser has hung up the phone with the farmer, he immediately gets back on the phone to offset the long soybean position with an equivalent sale. If he hesitates, he runs the risk of the basis market changing. Yet he's able to make a profit on this trade because of his mix-and-blend opportunities at the elevator, or simply because he has better knowledge of the market, or a better negotiating position than the farmer does. As soon as the trade is made, he knows what his profit will be, and it will never be more than that, although it could be less than that if something about the physical grain goes awry while it's in his possession." Back-to-back transactions are a very low-risk method of trading grain. You'd never do a back-to-back trade unless there was some profit in it, so you'll never lose money on the math from those transactions. On the other hand, you might not make enough money to pay for your operating costs and salaries and taxes and depreciation either. So an elevator could still theoretically go bankrupt if all it ever does is make back-to-back trades. Besides, what's the fun in that? The real joy of being a trader is to actually trade something, to master a market and know when it's appropriate to take some risk and reap some reward. It's true there is plenty of risk in handling physical grain, and it's true that speculating on flat prices may be an elevator's path toward financial ruin. But fortunately, there is one variable in the market that can be reliably traded. Basis itself. I've heard frustrated farmers exclaim that basis is meaningless and totally random anyway, so why should anybody pay attention to it anyhow? Nothing could be further from the truth. Basis is a predictable, tradable expression of seasonal or regional supply and demand. Because basis is variable, that means it can be traded. And that's exactly what cash grain merchandisers, also known as basis traders, do. All of a merchandiser's tasks, originating grain, selling grain, transporting grain, are done as a function of basis and as a means to arbitrage one basis value against another all grain accounting can be represented as basis values with the futures markets a hidden layer underneath those values and the flat price implied from both an elevator's corn position might be represented by saying in the october november time frame their corn position is long 24000 bushels the price at which they bought those bushels is 27 under the december contract the current value is 15 cents under the December contract, the premium gain or loss on that position is therefore $2,880. And similar entries could be made for each time frame in their overall position. To get the current financial value of that overall position marked to market at any point in time, All you would have to do is input the present values of the May, July, September, December, and March Corn Futures contracts. For instance, if the May contract was currently trading at $5.00, the current value of the 2,000 bushels the elevator holds in inventory would be $9,720. That's $5.00 minus 14 cents of basis times 2,000 bushels. However, the elevator bought in those bushels at an average price of 15 under the May. That was $9,700. So there is a penny of profit, or $20 in cash, in the inventory. As long as the physical grain position is perfectly hedged with an equivalent short futures position, it won't matter what the futures market does. It can go to $3 or $7, and there will still always be a penny of profit between 15 under the May and 14 under the May. Profit is made or lost according to how the current basis value of the market, in a given region for a given time period, compares to the basis value where the merchandiser bought or sold the grain in her position. The Springfield Co-op can expect to book some profit at harvest because it is able to buy grain from farmers at a 27 under the December basis value, when in fact it can make that grain worth 15 under the December during that same time frame. It is also currently facing a marked to market loss in the December to January and the February to March time frames because it previously sold hundreds of thousands of bushels of corn, at 20 under the march and 17 under the march, but the basis market has strengthened since then and is now at 15 under the march. When you sell a commodity and then the price of that commodity increases, you will lose money as you buy in to offset your position. Now you can begin to see why it's critically important for merchandisers to hedge their cash grain positions with futures, and to only be traders of the basis itself. It gives them the freedom to master the actual supply and demand of the grain markets without living in fear of the futures markets diving in one direction or the other. There are enough ways to lose money buying or selling grain at the wrong basis level, or by mishandling the physical grain, without adding a futures market gamble into the mix. Because of merchandisers' indifference to the future's price, there's a nice symbiosis between merchandisers and farmers, and between merchandisers and end-users. Consideration of the actual flat price of the grain becomes divorced from the typical buy-low, sell-high trader mentality. A merchandiser is just as happy to buy your corn at $5.85 per bushel, if that's $6 futures and 15 under basis, as she is to buy your corn at $4.85 per bushel, if that's $5 futures and identical basis. Similarly, she's as pleased to sell a train full of corn at $5 per bushel, at option the futures, as she would be to sell it at $6 per bushel, at identical basis. This is great because it never puts the merchandiser in a position to haggle her customers, neither buyers nor sellers, out of making a favorable, flat-price transaction. At their best, merchandisers truly can be supportive advisors to their customers' profitable businesses. There are really only two ways that the underlying value of the futures market affects a cash-grain merchandiser's position. And the merchandiser herself only has control over one of those, the threat of an imperfect hedge. The previous example cash-grain position had a couple of values that aren't perfectly divisible by 5,000. There was 2,000 bushels in inventory and 24,000 bushels bought at harvest. In order to perfectly hedge those positions, the merchandiser couldn't use just full-size futures contracts at 5,000 bushels each, but would also have to sell mini-futures at 1,000 bushels each. In reality, a grain inventory in a bin or a spot sale off a truck could be much weirder numbers. A perfect 60,000-pound truck load, for instance, would actually be 1,071.43 bushels of 56-pound corn. Keeping track of how long or how short a grain position gets over time isn't hard, but it requires a lot of discipline. Each merchandiser just has to keep the concept of hedging firmly in mind. Buy grain and sell futures, or sell grain and buy futures. Especially if there is a team of merchandisers all trading a grain position together at the same time, the best way to keep track of those hedges is to use a T account, which could look like this. In two columns separated by a vertical line, the left half is for cash showing buy 1071.43 bushels from joe smith and on the right column headed futures the merchandiser would write sell one mini corn at 5 dollars the next line may say buy 20000 bushels from gary green on the futures column it should say sell four corn at 501 then perhaps in the cash column Sell 25,000 bushels to the ethanol plant. The futures column should say, buy 5 corn at 504. Finally, the cash column may say, buy 2,546.25 bushels in the Grover elevator. The futures column should say, sell 2 mini corn at 504. The net result is a positive 617.68 bushels. For the nice, even values—the 20,000-bushel purchase and the 25,000-bushel sale—the merchandisers were able to perfectly hedge those cash transactions with exactly equivalent amounts of exposure, in exactly opposite directions, on the futures market. For the cash transactions with more awkward values, they still made offsetting futures transactions, but they just weren't a perfect match. At the end of the day, the merchandisers bought 617.68 bushels more than they were able to perfectly offset with futures positions. A lot of elevators or grain companies won't even hassle with mini-futures because they make enough cash transactions to eventually end up near a 5,000-bushel number anyway. But regardless of whether they round to the nearest 1,000 bushels or the nearest 5,000 bushels, they will invariably end up with some amount of unhedged exposure. In this instance, that's equivalent to cash speculating on 617.68 long bushels. If the corn futures market drops from $5.04 to $4.64 overnight, it would result in a $247 loss. That's the 617.68 bushels times 40 cents. That may not sound like a lot of money, but this is a deliberately small example. One does not want to have that happen to a significantly larger unhedged sum. That's why it's important for merchandisers to be accurate and immediate with their offsetting hedges. The example was not only deliberately small, it was also grossly oversimplified. In reality, the merchandisers would be simultaneously trading commodities and making hedges with a variety of different markets in a variety of different time frames. The hedging also might not be recorded in one single log like this, but rather as a collection of individual T-sheets. As long as the actual hedging is done consistently and correctly, there can be some latitude in the record-keeping— and merchandisers can still minimize their exposure to futures price movement. So the last remaining reason why a grain trading company would even care about how high or low the grain futures prices get is a more esoteric financial one. If you put up margin money for futures hedges, or borrow money to buy cash grain, or defer income on grain you own, or worry about the counterparty risk of someone not paying you for grain, all of those things make you care deeply about the time value of money, and they make your lending partners care about the underlying value of your goods. It's relatively easier to explain to your banker that you lost 10,000 bushels of $3 corn because of quality losses or a counterparty's failure to perform Then that you lost 10,000 bushels of $6 corn. And obviously the conversation gets increasingly difficult as the scales of volume or price increase. It's not just an awkward conversation. The real overhead costs of trading increase when commodity companies must pay interest on higher-valued commodities. In general, commercial lending to commodity trading firms is considered a highly favorable banking activity because the firms are trading basis rather than futures and have hedged most of their price risk, and grain companies get relatively cheap interest rates from their commercial bankers as a result. But in periods of the greatest market volatility, or when prices are especially high, overall interest costs do rise. Merchandisers may be indifferent to futures prices, but merchandising companies aren't entirely apathetic about the markets. To the individual merchandiser who doesn't have to engage with the company's finance department very frequently, there is still another way that the time value of money affects their trading. A merchandiser might buy grain in October and sell that grain in March because the seasonal trend is for basis to appreciate during that time frame. But even if futures fell during that time frame and basis stayed exactly flat, the merchandiser could still make money by owning grain during those four months. Because of carry. Carry is the real magic of the grain industry. Recall that futures spreads tend to be positive. Deferred contracts are typically worth a higher value than nearby contracts because the market reimburses owners of grain for storing that grain from one time frame to the next. Well, who do you think pockets that reimbursement? Anyone who owns a grain storage facility, that's who. Farmers can take advantage of the carry structure of the market by keeping their grain off the market for a few months, but the real beneficiaries are the commercial grain companies who buy and store giant quantities of grain, then ship out that grain and turn around and store a new collection of grain in the same space. The market pays for space. So the degree to which a merchandiser can keep her elevator full of grain and earning money is the degree to which she will capture value from the market's typical carry structure. Of course, the reason the market must pay for space is that space actually costs something. The trick is not only to capture the futures market's carry structure, but for that captured value to be larger than what it actually costs to store grain for that time period. Think of what it really takes to store grain after harvest between December and March. You've got to own some physical structure, so that's depreciation costs and taxes, and insure it and employ some people to maintain the structure itself and the grain contained within. On top of all that, the grain itself will shrink once you put it in a bin and let the moisture escape. If the rule of thumb at your facility is that grain in storage shrinks 1%, then the loss of 1% of the grain's original value is part of the cost of storing that grain. Shrink losses vary by the type of grain being stored and how wet it was when put into storage. Those losses will be higher right after harvest than they will be once the grain has already dried down. So in reality, storage rates are variable. For a benchmark, under the CME group's variable storage rate scheme, the minimum charge for storing wheat is 0.165 cents per bushel per day and the maximum charge is 0.365 cents per bushel per day. Basically, figure around 6 cents per bushel per month for normal feed grains in normal market conditions, although different varieties of grain will respond differently to storage. In addition to the actual costs of shrink and physically storing the grain, there is also the interest cost of deferring the income. For example, with 100,000 bushels of wheat worth $5 per bushel in three months' time, if the risk-free interest rate was presently 5%, by waiting that long to receive the income, you'd be giving up the opportunity to earn over $6,000 of interest on that capital. The full cost of carry is therefore the sum of the real storage costs and the interest costs of keeping grain off the market for a specified period of time. With the examples we just used, we could say the full cost of carry was $0.08 per bushel per month. Now the question becomes whether the futures market's carry structure reimburses that value or not. For example, it's not uncommon for the May KC wheat futures contract to be priced about $0.10 higher than the March futures contract. Two months of time pass between the March contract's expiration and the May contract's expiration, so that March-to-May spread is equivalent to $0.05 per month of carry. $0.05 per month is 62.5% of $0.08 per month, so we could say the market is offering 62.5% of the full cost of carry to keep wheat off the market during that time frame. If that's an adequate reimbursement for their costs, commercial grain companies would opt to earn those $0.10 per bushel on as many bushels as they could get their hands on. It won't matter whether the entire futures market rises or falls during that time period, as long as their physical grain position is hedged, and as long as the spread between the March and May futures contracts remains that wide, they will be able to book those profits. For a grain company, whose business it is to store grain and make a marginal profit on each bushel, the carry structure is a critical factor in the decision of when to finally release those bushels onto the market. Obviously, if the futures spread structures become inverted, if deferred futures contracts are worth less than nearby futures, which would be unusual. It's a signal that there is no additional value to storing the grain until a later date and that the market urgently requires the grain. But carry calculations are not only an important factor in the buy-sell decision for a specific commodity, they also guide a merchandiser's decisions about which commodities deserve the most space. Should an elevator store more corn or soybeans or wheat for the next three months? which will pay the best return on space? The difference between futures contract prices, the spread, is therefore far more important to a merchandiser than the actual contract prices themselves. If March and May futures contracts were exactly 11 cents apart, knowing that fact would be more meaningful to a merchandiser than knowing that the nearby futures price was exactly half per bushel. That's what the merchandiser Jason failed to consider in the previous story. Although grain bids and offers for different timeframes are expressed as basis according to the closest futures contract month, so corn for February delivery is bid off the March contract, corn for November delivery is bid off the December contract, etc., the same basis value off different contract months won't result in an equivalent cash bid, If the carry between March and May futures happened to be 12 cents wide, then a bid of 15 under the May would be 12 cents stronger than a bid of 15 under the March. You can always express a nearby bid in terms of a deferred contract, and in fact, calculating that equivalency is an important part of understanding the true carry spreads being offered on the cash market that is, the true return to space for storing a cash commodity and selling it in a later time frame. Let's assume the March to May futures spread is $0.08 wide and the May to July futures spread is $0.06 wide. Let's also say the January offer is $0.09 under the March contract. Then if the February offer is $0.05 under the March contract, the cash market carry for that one month is four cents. That's nine under compared to five under. If the March offer is two under the March contract, then the cash market carry for that one month is three cents. If the April offer is six cents under the May, then the equivalent nearby offer is two cents over the March. That's six under the May Plus 8 cents in the spread, giving you 2 cents over the March. The cash market carry for that month is therefore 4 cents. By the time you get to July, the offer may be 5 cents under the July contract, and the equivalent nearby offer compared to January may be 9 over the March. That's 5 cents under, plus 8 cents of carry in the first spread, plus 6 cents of carry in the deferred spread. Giving you nine over the March. The cash market carry that has accumulated over all these seven months is therefore 18 cents. That's comparing the July bid, equivalent to nine over the March, to the January bid, which is presently nine under the March. So by choosing to store corn six months and bringing it to market in July rather than January, The owner of that corn, who is hedged with short futures, not only gets a better basis number, 5 under the July rather than 9 under the March, but actually earns 18 cents more for the cash corn. That's 4 cents of the basis appreciation plus 14 cents of carry. That works out to 3 cents per month, which is actually a little less generous than the carry on the futures market, which is 3.5 cents per month but those cash bids are the real prices available. If the owner can store the corn more cheaply than three cents per month for the next six months, he should do so and wait until July to move the corn. On the other hand, if his real costs of carrying grain are higher than three cents per month, he won't want to wait past February. The key here, of course, is for the owner of the grain to be hedged with short futures, so that if the entire direction of the corn market turns bearish, any losses on the cash market will be reimbursed by gains in his futures brokerage account, and he will still receive the spread each time he rolls his futures hedge from one contract time frame to the next. A merchandiser may hedge grain against the contract month when he intends to move the grain but he can always change his mind or just always keep his present inventory hedged against the nearby month. Recall that when speculative index funds roll their long futures exposure from one nearby contract month to the next, they typically lose money because of the positive carry structure of grain futures markets. July contracts are typically higher priced than May contracts, which are typically higher priced than March contracts, etc., Well, their loss is a commercial hedger's gain. When a farmer or grain merchandising company rolls its short hedges, it buys out of the cheaper market, the nearby contract, and simultaneously sells back into the higher-priced contract, the deferred contract, and therefore captures the carry. That's real cash money they get to book in their futures brokerage account, not offset by anything other than the actual physical costs of storing grain. It's not my intention to turn this chapter into a primer on high-pressure sales techniques or old-fashioned horse-trading tricks, although such wisdom probably has a place in the merchandising world. Rather, I'll just end by relaying some basic principles of merchandising which, in conjunction with earning carry from the market, show how grain companies really make their money. Unless a merchandiser has the luxury of working somewhere simple that never ships its own grain, then without a doubt, the biggest use of merchandiser's time is wrangling trucks or trains or barges or containers or whatever freight provider they happen to use. That's because in addition to identifying whatever market arbitrage opportunities are available, the merchandiser can also arbitrage the freight costs themselves as he gets the grain where it needs to go. He can only do this by buying fob and selling delivered. That is to say, he needs to buy the grain free on board at its origin, take ownership of it there, be responsible for transporting it wherever it needs to go, and once it gets there, to transfer ownership at its destination. It's possible to buy delivered, he would only receive ownership of the grain once it was transported to its destination, or to sell fob to transfer ownership at its origin and let somebody else do the freight. But if a merchandiser does either of those things, he gives up the opportunity to arbitrage the freight. That's because the math for buying fob and selling delivered looks like this. Step 1. Buy 1,000 bushels of corn fob Gary Green's farm at 25 under the march. Step 2. Trucking between Gary Green's farm and Springfield ethanol costs $0.15. Step 3. Sell 1,000 bushels of corn delivered to Springfield Ethanol at 10 under the march. With that back-to-back math, there is zero profit in the trade for the merchandiser. His opportunity now is to somehow get the freight costs cheaper than 15 cents per bushel. If he can hire a truck to move that corn for only 10 cents per bushel, he will have made 5 cents per bushel of pure profit. The same arithmetic is at work for rail freight, barge freight, ocean freight, containerized freight—anything, and for any commodity, not just grain. There are various methods of acquiring freight more cheaply than the going market rate. Commodity trading companies may simply negotiate with a freight provider—a railroad, trucking company, etc.—and get discounts for large volumes of business. They may also speculate in the freight markets themselves and book cheap freight in advance when prices seem undervalued. But the most elegant way to reduce the freight costs between a commodity load's origin and its destination is to use backhauls to make the full round trip more valuable for each mile. The market's freight spread between Gary Green's Farm and Springfield Ethanol might be 15 cents because the two points are 75 miles apart and a truck would have to make a 150-mile round trip at $1 per mile to drive empty out to Gary's farm, pick up the corn, and then haul it back to Springfield. But if that truck were able to earn something for hauling a different commodity on the way out to Gary's farm, for instance, ethanol byproducts to a nearby feedlot, or rock to a nearby highway project, then of the total $150 cost of the round trip, maybe the corn leg would only account for half of that cost. The price spread for grain between any two locations is generally defined by the transportation cost between those two locations, and a cross-country arbitrageur can only capture a profit from that spread if he can transport the grain for a price lower than that. Freight negotiation may be one strategy for getting relatively cheaper grain transportation, but identifying backhaul opportunities is the more effective, profitable strategy. Incidentally, if the cost of fuel goes up or down, or the supply and demand of trucking labor changes, those per-mile calculations will also change. So add freight market prices to the list of things merchandisers have to keep up to date on at all times. They need to be building relationships with all their customers, their buyers and their sellers. They need to be managing their freight providers. They need to be always conscious of the future's spread values and always aware of the current basis values in all their markets. By the time some old merchandisers retire, they will have forgotten more about a particular region's trucking routes and a particular ethanol plant's idiosyncrasies than you or I will ever know. Blessedly, the one thing they don't have to worry about much is the futures price. They can leave that particular headache to the producers, end users, and speculators. Not a zero-sum game. Merchandisers may be neutral about what futures price they use to hedge their cash grain positions, but the people and businesses who must actually produce or consume that grain certainly feel strongly about prices. A farmer's profit, the very salary from which she must support her family, is determined by the price she receives for her grain. Similarly, the input costs for every flour mill, feedlot, and ethanol plant are determined by how cheaply they can source grain. So to some extent, if one commercial business makes money from a futures hedge, another commercial business on the other side of that hedge is losing that exact same quantity of money. Here's an example how futures trading plays into real economic profit or loss. Gary Green sells a cash-forward contract for 5,000 bushels of soybeans at harvest for $9 per bushel to the Springfield Co-op. To offset the purchase of 5,000 bushels in the October time frame, the Springfield Co-op immediately sells one November soybean futures contract at $9.50. Eventually, the Springfield Co-op sells those beans as part of a larger 50,000-bushel package to a soybean processor— profiting from the basis trade. Let's say the sale is made at 30 under the May, when the May futures are trading at $8.30 per bushel, so the flat price on the trade is $8 per bushel. When the co-op makes the sale, they must offset it by buying futures contracts. To prevent any slippage between where the contract is written and where the futures trade really gets filled, The co-op and the processor trade futures contracts with an exchange of futures for cash, also known as an exchange for physicals, or EFP, transaction. The 10 soybean futures contracts in this example will be processed by the futures exchange for the two trading parties' accounts, but at a pre-agreed price, the market price at the time of the basis trade, that won't affect the rest of the futures markets' bids and asks. During that futures exchange, the processor sold 10 soybean futures contracts to offset 10 previously established long positions. Let's say those long positions had been bought when the soybean futures market was trading at $9 per bushel as a hedge against potentially even higher input costs. So the processor just bought 50,000 bushels of soybeans at a cash price of $8 per bushel. They will write a check for $400,000, and it fully booked a hedge loss of $1 per bushel in its futures account, another $50,000. Those beans effectively cost the processor $9 per bushel once all the trading was done. Most end-users are also able to hedge their products, not just their inputs. In this example, the soybean processor probably also sold soybean meal and soybean oil futures contracts at the same time it was buying those $9 soybean futures. It would have hedged not just its input costs, but its entire soybean crush margin, the profit that results from turning raw soybeans into processed products. Regardless, the example demonstrates how the decisions of real economic participants in the grain markets affect futures activity. Anytime a farmer chooses to lock in a price for grain, whether he does it via his own independent futures hedge or via a forward contract, there will be some downward pressure on the futures market, some volume of selling activity. One way or another, Somebody is going to sell equivalent futures exposure at that time, even if it's not the farmer himself, but rather the merchandiser who's hedging his own cash purchase. Equally, any time an end user chooses to lock in a price for grain, there will be some upward support for the futures market, that is, some volume of buying activity. Selling and buying activity from market-neutral merchandisers may not be price-sensitive, but overall, futures prices really reflect the grain market's economic reality in this way. When prices get high enough to compel producers to sell grain at a profit, their selling volume will exert pressure against a further rise in prices. When prices get low enough to compel end-users to buy grain at a projected profit, their buying volume will exert upward support against a further drop in prices. Of course, we know participation in the futures markets isn't limited to commercial producers and end-users. Speculators are also welcome to buy and sell contracts. Support or pressure from speculators' volume of buying or selling is also important to price behavior, but it's relatively harder to pin down. $8 soybeans may be bad, that is, unprofitable, for farmers, and good, that is, cheap, for poultry feeders, while $14 beans may be good, profitable for farmers, and bad, expensive, for poultry feeders. Between those two sections of the futures market, you can directly pencil out who is winning and who is losing at any point in time, and they may both be profitable at the same time but there's no equivalent way to do that for speculators. $8 beans are good for bullish speculators if the market moves higher later. $14 beans could also be good for bullish speculators if the market moved even higher than that. Those traders have no underlying profit calculation, just the estimation of what direction the market will take in the future. Therefore, the net result of all grain futures trade doesn't necessarily result in an equal number of winners and losers. A farmer may have a hedge loss of $1 per bushel in his futures trading account, and somewhere else in the market there may be an end-user with a dollar hedge gain in its futures account. On the other hand, the buyer on the other side of that farmer's sale could have been a bearish speculator who was closing out a losing position it could have been a bullish speculator who profits penny for penny as the farmer's position loses penny by penny. There is no way to know in the anonymous amalgamation of the futures markets. Just remember that philosophically, even if the bullish speculator benefits penny for penny as the farmer accumulates a hedge loss, both parties are gaining something from that transaction the speculator gained an opportunity to take on risk and potentially receive financial reward. The farmer got the benefit of removing risk from his operation and knowing what stable price he will receive for his production, no matter what the crazy futures market does in the meantime.